hello, everybody, and welcome back to the All Saints podcast. We're continuing today working our way through a series of episodes which are rebroadcasts in large part of our Wednesday night Bible studies, where we're contemplating uh, in some detail the question of what it means to pursue maturity in Christ, and in particular whether it's possible to articulate a uh, coherent, overarching, biblically informed theological framework for that task in every area of life. And we've had a couple of uh, sessions picking up this uh, so far. Uh, last week we got about half as far in the Bible study and therefore in the podcast recording as uh, I'd planned to. And so just uh, yesterday, Wednesday evening, as I'm recording this now, we picked up the second uh, paragraph of the big overview, the two-page overview, which I shared with the men here at the Men's Discipleship Breakfast a few weeks back, and which if you go back two podcast episodes, you can listen to me talking through with them. And what I want to do now is, uh, just as a preamble to uh, the conversation that we had last night at Bible study, which um, I hope will be helpful for you, whether or not you were able to be there uh, in person or on Zoom. I want to just share with you a few bits and pieces that we didn't get to, which will be new therefore, and so hopefully we'll add some value to this uh, podcast episode for uh, all of you, uh, whether or not you were at the Bible study. So um, what I'm going to do is just to read uh, the one paragraph summary that we explored in uh, the Bible study in which you're going to be able to listen to in the next few minutes and then just make some comments about uh, one or two aspects of it that we didn't get to that I think might be helpful. So we thought last time about the responsibility that we all have to grow as uh, mature Christians, grow towards mature Christ-likeness. Today we really get to the the first uh, substantive uh, section in which we're thinking about what that maturity in Christ is. And here's the summary. This maturity, that is maturity in Christ, the striving for which is the goal of the Christian life, this maturity is best understood as a broad, all-embracive category of Christ-likeness, including overcoming specific sins, addressing specific issues of faithfulness and fruitfulness in personal, relational, and family contexts, developing an increasing capacity to handle the demands and complexities of adult life, dealing with various matters on the borders of what are often categorized as mental health issues like anxiety and depression, and in general taking every opportunity for faithful, joyful, enthusiastic, sacrificial service in every area of life. Now, in what follows, uh, you'll hear me talking through and uh, having some great discussion with the uh, Bible study folks uh, through a, a broad-based biblical framework which seeks to articulate a basis for and to explore some of the details of that summary. What we didn't get to uh, were a couple of sections towards the end where we're exploring the issue of what um, a friend of mine, uh, Mark Horn, calls self-rule uh, in relation to godliness in our actions and godliness in our speech, just roughly to anticipate where we're going. Um, we began uh, the Bible study, and we'll get this in the podcast as well, uh, by thinking of the creation mandate, Genesis 1, 26 to 28, as the, the background framework within which the task of maturity ought to be understood. And then we expounded how Solomon uh, fulfills and develops that picture in considerable depth uh, in uh, 1 Kings 3 through 10, before everything comes off the rails in chapter 11. And the, the self-rule idea is an interesting one. Uh, one or two people ask questions like, why is uh, this uh, terminology so significant? Uh, why should we make this 
um, at this stage at least, a kind of architectural framework for understanding what it means to pursue maturity in Christ? Well, uh, it really flows from the creation mandate, Genesis 1, 26 to 28, which is a command to rule the created order. And Mark Horn makes the point in his excellent book, Solomon Says, that you have to start with yourself. In one sense, yourself, that is to say your thoughts, desires, your body, your life, is a part of the created order. If you can't rule that bit, how are you going to rule any other bit? Particularly since, secondly, yourself is the tool through which and in which, or the means by which, we go about subduing and filling the world to the glory of God. So I don't want to anticipate too much of that in any detail because you've got uh, an hour and a bit of it still to come. But let me just get to a couple of points where it's intriguing how in the book of Proverbs, uh, Solomon uh, uh, contrasts, I guess would be the best way to put it, the the self-rule that he seems to speak of elsewhere in one way or another with the alternative. And you see a depiction in the book of Proverbs of people who are unable to control their own desires. They're not in control of their own lives, and instead their desires and therefore the world around them and the temptations around them control their lives. And here's just a few uh, texts from the book of Proverbs which might, excuse me, might stimulate your reflection on this. And notice how in all these uh, different texts, the way that Solomon describes the life of a foolish or a wicked or a sinful person is that they're captured by something. They're not in full possession of themselves. They're ensnared or captured by something else which operates upon them through desires that they've not been able to tame appropriately. So, for example, Proverbs 5, 22 and 23 reads as follows. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him. He is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline and because of his great folly he is led astray. It's really intriguing uh, that what is it that ensnares uh, the wicked. Well, it's the iniquities of the wicked ensnare him. They operate upon him and therefore through his desires for uh, to indulge the foolishness and the sinfulness of what he sees around him. And he dies, verse 23, for lack of discipline. He's not able to discipline himself appropriately and therefore he's ensnared by the temptations he sees around him. Proverbs 6, 25, uh, a particular uh, sin that's in view here, the sin of adultery, which is highlighted from verse 20 onward, Um, Do not desire her beauty, that is the beauty of the adulteress, in your heart, and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. Fairly um, graphic image, don't need me to expand on that very much. But notice, again, the underlying uh, structural framework within which Solomon is uh, imagining and encouraging us to imagine this, in this case, young man, uh, operating. Uh, Here is a man who is in danger of being captured by somebody's eyelashes, by the the eyelashes of a beautiful and seductive adulteress. And why is he being captured by that? Well, um, because he's not fully in control of himself. To be in control of your own desires is the same thing as being fully in possession of who you are and therefore not vulnerable to being captured by somebody else. Uh, Over a few pages, Proverbs 11, verse 6, the righteousness of the upright delivers them, but the treacherous are taken captive by... What would you expect the treacherous to be taken captive by? Well, maybe you'd expect them to be taken captive by other people. Here, uh, it's not that. The treacherous are taken captive by their lust, their ungodly desires. 
Notice again uh, this underlying theme that uh, what happens to somebody who is foolish, wicked, a transgressor, or the treacherous, these are the kind of vocabulary that the book of Proverbs uses, the thing that captures them is their own foolish and sinful desires. Here, lust is particularly highlighted, which might be sexual lust, it might be lust, uh, sinful desire more generally. And then finally, there's a cluster of Proverbs which are all about how words, strangely, our own words can act in this way to ensnare us. Proverbs 10, 19, just back a page or so, when words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. It's not other people's words that lead us into transgression, it's our words. Therefore, it's our lips that we need to restrain. It's really intriguing, isn't it, that we might easily imagine that the thing we need to do in order to guard ourselves and perhaps particularly our children from sin is to keep them away from ungodly words that might lead them astray. Well, that's true. But here it's their words that need to be controlled in order to prevent them from stepping out of line. Proverbs 17, 27, in a similar vein. Just bear with me while I turn over a few pages. Um, find that Proverbs 17, 27. Whoever restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Notice, restraint, cool spirit. Those are the things that are, that correlate with understanding and true knowledge, not whoever can blurt out whatever he thinks as quickly as possible. And then Proverbs 21, 23. Uh, where are we? Uh, here we are, yeah. Whoever keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps himself out of trouble. Uh, so again, uh, imagine uh, the advice of the parent to the child. You might easily think that you advise them uh, to be careful who they listen to. Don't be led astray by other people. And that's a proverbial theme. You find that in the scriptures. But here, it's the one who guards his own mouth keeps himself out of trouble. So you imagine your young uh, son or daughter heading off to college somewhere, and you've got in your mind all the, the fears um, and the uncertainties about what they're going to hear that might lead them down to, in all kinds of um, uh, destructive and ruinous paths. Well, yes, but here it's what they say that might cause all the damage. Similar themes apply um, in a slightly different way, not so much to uh, resisting particular sins, but to fruitfulness in life more generally. Let me um, highlight just two or three proverbs um, here. And again, remember what we're, we're highlighting. Uh, the underlying point is that it is self-restraint, self-control, self-rule, taking dominion over this part of the created order that is made up of you, that is the key to uh, godliness and fruitfulness and faithfulness in every area of life. So consider uh, Proverbs 16.32. This is quite a famous proverb. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. So here you've got two categories of people. You've got the mighty men who can capture foreign cities and defend their people with great valour and great might. And then you've got somebody who is slow to anger, who rules, takes dominion over his own spirit. That man is stronger, exercising greater control over the created order, greater dominion than the conqueror of another city, because he can rule his own desires and affections and therefore actions. Proverbs 25, verse 28. Where are we? Let's skip to page too far. Here we are. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. 
uh, one of the ladies at last night's Bible study commented that uh, the idea of self-rule is not terribly far from the uh, biblical idea of self-control. And indeed, that's right. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit, one of the fruit singular of the Spirit, sorry, um, which is it's right. The, the, um, uh, the list of Spirit-given virtues that ought to be found in every uh, Christian man or woman includes the capacity to control oneself. Um, I think the idea of self-rule is somewhat broader than that. It's it's not just restraining yourself from sinful actions. It's controlling yourself and, and having possession of your desires and aims in life uh, positively as well. But still, the, the idea is the same. And then finally, the idea is at least similar, sorry. And then Proverbs 21, verse 25. The desire of the sluggard kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. All day long he craves and craves but the righteous gives and doesn't hold back. Um, so the sluggard here, the one who is lazy and therefore fruitless in his life, is killed by his desire. It's not that he doesn't have any desires for anything. He just doesn't have any desires for anything fruitful. His desires have taken possession of him and are leading him into, well, laziness, idleness, uh, the quickest route to uh, the minimum exertion in the short term, which of course causes ruin in the long term, like the man who folds his hand all summer and sleeps under the tree when he should be working on the farm, is going to come to the fields at harvest and not find anything there. So uh, those are some things that we didn't get to last night and which aren't therefore in the remainder of this podcast. There is a whole bunch of stuff which is there. We talked about marriage, we talked about the whole uh, underlying story of Genesis and all the sexual unfaithfulness that's um, found there as the fruit of ungodly lustful desire. We talked about um, self-rule and the promise of future responsibility in Jesus' parable of the ten minors um, in uh, Luke um the parable of the miners, sorry, not the ten miners, the parable of the miners in Luke 11. Luke 11? Yeah, it is Luke. Um, sorry, Luke 19, I think, in verses. Um, Luke 19 um, from uh, 11 to the next few verses. And then we talked, of course, about Solomon um, and looked in some detail, actually, at the things that he accomplished in uh, 1 Kings 3 through 10 uh, before his downfall uh, in catastrophic form in, in chapter 11. But the things he accomplished and how we ought to understand them as painting a detailed picture of what... Uh, godly Christian or godly uh, biblical spirit-filled maturity ought to look like for a son of Adam who's one with the Lord Jesus Christ. Hopefully that'll be interesting and helpful uh, for you. Time will tell. You've got another hour and a quarter to go if you get all the way to the end. I hope you find it helpful. And so with that, enjoy the rest of the podcast. Bye for now. Great to see you. Um, it feels like those tables are a bit further away, but if I move forward now, I'll be off the screen for the Zoom, so I'll stay here and just have to look at you in the distance. It's wonderful to see you. Um, uh, quick notice or two. Um, thank you for your prayers. Um, as I mentioned uh, on Sunday at Forum, I think, um, Pastor Neil and Pastor Booth from Nacogdoches uh, were leading a pastor's fellowship for this last two and a half days, really, and I had the privilege of going away with total of 11 guys, wasn't it? Um, 12 altogether, yeah. Yeah, 12 altogether. Um, and it was just, while it was a salutary reminder that um, it's such a tremendous blessing to be here with Pastor Neil, because lots of guys in the pastoral ministry don't have um, 
such ongoing fellowship and frankly some don't have such vibrant and, or at least large congregations and so um, a real opportunity to encourage those guys and um, to help think through some issues. We also had um, three pastors who are not pastors of CREC churches but are thinking in various uh, possible contexts about affiliation with the CREC in the future and that's really exciting and just to try and <laughs> get to know them without putting them off you know that was the challenge um, I'm, I, hopefully that worked um, but yeah it was just really really good time of encouragement and refreshment so um, thank you for your awareness and for your prayers and um, it's I always feel really refreshed coming back from things like that um, late nights and early mornings and lots to do in between but it's just great seeing those other guys and praying together and, um, and talking together so that was us for the last few days and um, I, oh, I should also say the obvious I mean, Pastor Neil and Pastor Booth started doing this if I recall just themselves that's right wasn't it a few years ago just the two of you 20, 20 years ago so just a few years ago like before half of you were born um, and um, basically it's just expanded from that hasn't it you've just been inviting the other guys I remember the time the first time you invited me I thought wow and to spend two or three days um, listening to Pastor Neil and Pastor Booth talking about pastoral ministry is an education in all kinds of ways so I'm grateful to you brother and I know lots of other guys are too anyway we have work to do this evening uh, you should have a little handout like this one uh, and those of you who are zooming should also have such a handout um, about which I will say something uh, in a moment. If you haven't got it um, uh, at home, you might like to try and get hold of another device or even print it out because it may be helpful to you uh, just as we're working together through this material. Um, I'm going to lead us in prayer and then uh, I'll begin by explaining uh, the content of this uh, little uh, document and what we're going to do. So as we begin, let's pray together. Merciful Father, thank you for the fellowship that you've granted us with you in Christ and with one another in Christ. And all of life, uh, as it's set before us, is this glorious opportunity, having been joined to Jesus, to walk through the world with him, growing into closer communion with him, being more closely conformed to his likeness. And we're grateful for that, Father. And we long to deepen our understanding of your ways in us and in the world and deepen our fellowship with Christ by walking more closely with him. That is to say, growing to be more mature like him. So please would you set before us this evening a vision of that closeness so that we may be excited by it, we may have mistaken ideas corrected, we may have our vision expanded, and we may grow more like him and be better equipped to live for him and to serve him and one another. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So you remember, um, a, couple of day, uh, a couple of weeks ago now, uh, I began with the uh, men's discipleship group uh, setting before you uh, a um, systematic pastoral theology or a systematic theology of growth towards maturity in Christ, a practical attempt to set out what uh, the Christian life is about and to consider how in the most practical terms we ought to seek to grow as Christians. And um, my plan from that point on, uh, having made that kind of public, um, putting it on the podcast and so on, uh, and given I gave you a copy of uh, that two-page summary last week, um, I mentioned last time that I want to start just working through that 
uh, summary document, uh, one paragraph at a time. And I gave us two paragraphs last week, which turned out to be ambitious, because uh, we got through only one of them. And so our task today is to get through paragraph two, uh, which is in the grey box at the top of the uh, sheet in front of you, entitled three, what is maturity in Christ? And so you remember last week, uh, really what we talked about was quite simple in outline, although we got into some detail. Uh, we clarified that we have a responsibility both to pursue and particularly to help one another towards greater maturity in Christ Jesus. The second paragraph, which I'm going to read shortly, explains in the most concise terms that I can come up with what I mean by maturity in Christ. And what we're going to spend the rest of this evening doing is first looking at that summary and then expanding it in various directions. And hopefully this handout will uh, be some use as we do that. So the first paragraph we've already looked at. The Christian life can be viewed as a process of pursuing what Scripture calls maturity in Christ. As pastors, it's our goal, Pastor Neil and me and all pastors, I think, and privilege to help you in this pursuit. Indeed, all of us have a responsibility to help one another as we strive towards this objective. Today, we're going to be thinking about this. This maturity is best understood as a broad all-embracing category of Christ-likeness, including, and there are five areas I've tried to distill which overlap, but nonetheless I think can be distinguished, overcoming specific sins, addressing specific issues of faithfulness and fruitfulness in personal, relational, and family contexts, developing an increasing capacity to handle the demands and complexities of adult life, dealing with various matters on the borders of what are often categorized as mental health issues, e.g. anxiety and depression. And finally, in general, taking every opportunity for faithful, joyful, enthusiastic, sacrificial service in every aspect of life. Before we plunge into the rest of the notes, let me give you the, the two simplest ways of justifying the claim made in that second paragraph. The, f the first and most simple is, uh, in relation to Jesus' discussion with his disciples in Mark 8, where he asks them who people say that he is, and um, they go through a whole list of, well, some think you're Elijah or John the Baptist or one of the prophets, and he says, okay, well, what about you? Who do you think I am? And Peter pipes up and says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And then this conversation goes on a little bit, and Peter gets into a bit of trouble. And Jesus says, uh, towards the climax of the conversation, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's a very significant statement, because in the context of Mark's gospel, Mark is describing Jesus' journey to the cross. Three times in chapters 8, 9, and 10, he predicts his death on the cross. And he instructs his disciples in chapter 8 that if they want to come after him, they need to be like him in that respect. And so being a Christian is about being like Jesus, which highlights and, make, and explains, actually, the, the second very simple way I, I have of defending the claim that we ought to be striving for Christ-likeness. Does anybody know what... Um, was, I think it's the first name that was given to the disciples of Jesus. They were called followers of something. Do you know what they were called? Yeah, the way. Yeah, followers of the way. 
And it seems to relate to Jesus' self-description in John's Gospel as the way, the truth, and the life. But in Greek, the language of the New Testament, as in English, way um, can mean both the direction you're going, you know, this is the way to London or the way to Fort Worth, or, and it can also mean what you're walking on, the footpath. We sometimes speak of a footway. Um, this is the way to Dallas would mean this road is that thing we're walking on. And so we're walking, so to speak, in Christ towards Christ. It's a very, if you think about it like that, it's, it's a somewhat profound description of the early Christians that they were the followers of the way, followers of the path. They weren't described in the first instance as believers, interestingly, though they were described as believers elsewhere. But that's one of the labels that was given to them, actually as a, as a contemptuous and derisive um, uh, uh, label by some of their Jewish critics, the, the way which they call a sect, as Paul notes in the book of Acts. So we're all, we're all about becoming more like Jesus. And I think these five areas helpfully distill some overlapping ways in which it would be good for us to become more like Jesus, to overcome specific sins. Um, to address particular issues of faithfulness and fruitfulness in personal, relational, and family contexts. Things that, it's not so much that they're going wrong because you're being sinful, although perhaps you are, perhaps we are, but they're not going as right as they could be. Think of that in relation to your relationship with your mum or your schoolwork or um, how it is when I mean, you've got one new baby gurgling away there, you know. Um, uh, you think about uh, your, um, your new marriage or your, your work. There's lots of things you're doing where it's like that there would be room for improvement. And it's not like you can identify and highlight specific acts of wickedness. Particular, well, then maybe you could, but it's like, yeah, I just wish I were more. Uh, Jesus would do this differently. Related to that, the third issue um, adult life, uh, speaking particularly now to younger people, um, adult life um, involves all kinds of complexities. Uh, questions, the answer to which is it depends, or yes and no, or that's difficult. Um, living with unresolved tension, but living cheerfully with it. Living in imperfect circumstances, but still you know, making the best of them, and so on. Handling the uh, consequences of other people's ruined lives. That's an example of the complexities and demands of adult life. Quite often, Pastor Neil and I will be asked questions, as indeed we were last Sunday, about um, how to deal with a situation where you've got uh, not immediate family, but somewhat distant family, where things have gone terribly wrong. I've been asked that question again just in the last few days. It's, it's demanding and complex. And a mature person will know what to do, and a child will not. Related to that, then... Um, in the modern world, uh, uh, psychologists and psychiatrists have identified and given names to some of the 
um, emotional and psychological maladies which make people feel unable to handle some of the demands of life. Um, anxiety and depression are two of the most common. And sometimes uh, there is a huge amount of value in specialist uh, psychotherapy or counseling or even drug treatment. But I'm not persuaded that always that should be our first port of call. And at the very least, it could helpfully be combined a lot of the time with just thinking, okay, are there particular perspectives that the scriptures bring to bear on this issue? Um, or are there things that I could do to order my life in a more Christ-like way, which might alleviate some of what I encounter as anxiety, say? I mean, the scriptures do talk about anxiety. Um, and it struck me in recent years that that's something that perhaps stands in the way of people's maturing in Christ and therefore ought to be thought about. And then finally, and this is just to make sure we've covered everything, this is like the Christian version of the Athenians' altar to the unknown God, you know, except hopefully it's not idolatrous and wicked. Um, taking every opportunity for faithful, joyful, enthusiastic, sacrificial service in every area of life. Wouldn't that be great to have that written over your tombstone? Not yet. <laughs> um, he took every opportunity for faithful, joyful, enthusiastic, sacrificial service in everything he did. Well, there we are. That's something to aspire to. So that's, that's a broad summary. And what I want to do is to present in, a, in biblical terms, not kind of bullet point expositions of each of those five things, but a big picture in the hope that what you'll see within that big picture is different aspects of those five elements. Scripture doesn't have a chapter on dealing with anxiety, but what it does is present a picture which would help us to perhaps encounter that feeling in the right way. Scripture doesn't have a chapter on dealing with particular sins or a chapter on growing in faithfulness, but it gives us a picture of how human life ought to be lived in obedience to God and in faithfulness to Christ, which, if we did that, would scoop up those and all the other elements in that uh, brief summary. And it begins, as it almost always begins, uh, in Genesis chapter 1, with the, the text of Scripture that I'm discovering I quote more often than any other from the Old Testament. Um, uh, Genesis 1, 26 to 28, in which God describes Adam and Eve's, actually, Adam's task. And it's so familiar to you, I'm going to read it briefly and make a comment or two about it. You can probably preach along with me for this bit. Um, uh, in, uh, on the sixth day, at the, at the first climax of the creation process, God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and so on and so forth. God created man in his image, verse 27, male and female, both men and women have tasks of image bearing and therefore ruling over the creation. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over everything. And this has traditionally been seen, I'm going to talk really quickly now because you've heard me say this before, it's tradi traditionally been seen by theologians as uh, drawing attention to two major tasks, work and procreation, that is marriage and child rearing. Work isn't just the job that you do for money, that's part of it. Um, work also includes all the other things that make you who you are and that you do um, uh, that are not pointless, dissipated um, entertainment or just leisure pursuits. Um, 
uh, we ought not to just think that our value comes from what other people pay us for. But that's part of it, because we're just living in a, an age where um, money has been invented um, to summarize very briefly what Joel could expand on at great, greater length. Um, and so instead of we all have to grow our own crops and we all have to make our own shoes and we all have to build our own houses, we can um, instead be an insurance adjuster and have and pay somebody else to do those things for us. And economies of scale and specialization mean that uh, part of how we fill and subdue the world by growing crops is by being an insurance adjuster or by flying a plane or by doing something else to earn money if you're doing that kind of role. And of course, that's not the only thing that we do. Um, to fill the earth and subdue it cannot be done by two people. Earth is a big place. Uh, subduing it is a big task. Filling it requires having children. And so it is the task of the people of God to fill the earth with people who obediently and faithfully serve God by taking this good and wonderful world and bringing order to its chaotic parts and bringing cultivated beauty out of its um, wild parts and bringing out from it all of the latent fruitfulness that lies within it, just like the fruit lies within a tree, so to speak, and the tree, if it's well pruned and well cultivated, will give fruit by the ton for years and years and years. The task of living in the world is the task of doing those things. Those things. I also mentioned recently there's a third mandate in the early uh, chapters of Genesis which has to do with rest, um, the Sabbath, uh, which isn't mentioned in this text but is mentioned in the next chapter, and uh, is the third kind of element of the calling that God has given us. To put it simply, um, God called Adam and Eve to... Uh, marry, have children, work hard to raise them faithfully, work hard to cultivate the world and bring out the latent beauty and wonder and goodness within it, to rest in the presence of God and to worship him, and then to pass on that charge to their offspring so that the world will be filled with people cultivating and beautifying it to the glory of God. That's what we're here for. And if only Adam had managed to do that, well, everything would have been, well... Oh. Would he have been put into a deep sleep and then raised from it, resurrected again? Or would he have made a kind of painless transition from his initial created glory to greater glory? Or would he just have remained as he is? Uh, those questions we will not discuss tonight. Much as it will pain you, sorry Clayton, that we won't talk about those. But those are questions people have asked. Um, I think most likely he would have been put into some kind of deep, death-like sleep and then raised gloriously. And the way you know that is because of how it ended up with the resurrection of Jesus. We can understand the purpose of the beginning by looking what God did at the end. And probably he was supposed to read Genesis in that way, but that's for another time. That's Adam's task, though. Work, faithful, fruitful family life, rest and worship and thus enjoying the world that God has made. Adam failed catastrophically at that. And one way of reading Scripture from this point on is to say, well, who will be the man who takes up the mantle of Adam and shows us how it should have been done? And of course, the answer to that question ultimately is, you may answer. Jesus. It was like, please don't ask us Sunday school questions. <laughs> yeah, Jesus is, um, he's sometimes called the second Adam. 
which is wrong. He's the last Adam insofar as he's the climactic one, but he's not the second one. Uh, history is filled with Adams. The second who has a reasonable claim to be called, or the best claim to be called Adam is Noah, because he receives a similar instruction to um, Adam. But probably we could describe Cain and Abel as Adams as well, and Seth, and all the other um, men and women. Adam just means man. Um, and throughout Scripture, what you find is key figures are described in terms that show that their lives echo Adam's calling. Noah is the obvious one. Um, flood, so waters everywhere. Then the water recedes, like the water receded in Genesis 1. And the new world appears. And then he's given a command to fill and subdue the earth in Genesis 9. So he looks very much like a second Adam, another Adam. But one of the most prominent Adams, and one who shows us perhaps more than any other apart from Jesus about how maturity ought to be reached and life ought to be lived, is Solomon. And I want to turn you to Solomon to show you some of his accomplishments. And what this will do, I hope, is to give you a, a fuller biblical picture of what it is that Jesus has fulfilled and therefore what it is that we are called to aspire to. Are you with me? Um, you recall, of course, that um, David in 2 Samuel 7 uh, took it upon himself to build a house for the Lord. He said, I, oh, here we are, you know. Um, I'm living in a nice house and the ark of God dwells in a tent. That's not fair. I shall build a house for God. And Nathan says, no, no, you shouldn't be doing that. Or initially he says, you go ahead, go ahead and do it. But then, then um, the Lord uh, communicates that that's not a good idea. The word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell David, don't, don't do that. The one who will build a house for me is Solomon. And that's very significant. This highlights that Solomon is a really dramatic and significant Adam because the last person to, so to speak, dwell in a house of God, well, you could argue that Moses maybe, but he didn't, uh, not quite in the same way, it's more of a tent than a house. Um, the Garden of Eden was God's house in the sense that it was God's dwelling place and it was the place where Adam lived. And so if you're looking for the next person who really builds the house of God, Adam, you've got all these other people, and then it looks like Solomon is next in line. Now that's a that's a oversimplification because the ark, in a sense, is the house of God and the tabernacle is and so on. But just suffice it to say that, that 2, King, 2 Samuel 7 draws attention to Solomon and highlights um, uh, his uh, life. And I invite you to turn with me to 1 Kings 3, and we're going to start working through some highlights to his life. And we'll see um, how his life depicts the maturity to which we should be aspiring. So let's start with 1 Kings 3, um, verse 5. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness and righteousness. And you've kept for him this great and steadfast love and given him a son to sit on his throne this day, echoing Second Samuel 7, the promise to David. 
And now, O Lord my God, you have given, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father. Although I am but a little child, I don't know how to come out and go in. That's a very significant moment. He's recognizing his immaturity. Can you see? I don't have the maturity for this task. You've given me this tremendous responsibility of being great David's son. And I'm a kid. Like, what do I know? He calls attention, in other words, to his immaturity. So what does he need that will fill that gap? Well, we read on. And your servant, he's talking about himself, is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that I might discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? What does he ask for in verse 9? Wisdom. And does that ring any bells? Just look closely at verse 9. Give your servant therefore an understanding mind to govern your people that I might discern between good and evil. Where have you seen that before? Anybody? Yeah, Jack. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Ah, right. And we talked about this in Bible and theology, didn't we? You remember? And it's really intriguing because what did God say about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in Genesis 2? What did he say to Adam? He say you should eat this or he say you shouldn't eat this? Right, you shouldn't eat this. It looks like Adam, at the very least, this is it's not allowed for him. And the question is, is it not allowed for him and not allowed for anybody, ever? Or is it just, it's not allowed for you now, Adam? Not yet, but one day it will be. And it's very intriguing because Solomon seems to recall that name of the tree. Give to me, Lord, that which is represented by that tree that Adam wasn't allowed to eat from. I need it now. I've got this great people, your people, to whom you've made your promises, and I'm responsible for leading them. I, I need that good and evil knowledge. But notice, he doesn't say to know good and evil. What does he say? Yeah, discern. is a different verb. Um, when Satan was talking to Eve, um, and when God spoke... Um, to Adam in chapter 2 and, God, and Satan spoke to Eve in chapter 3 um, they both spoke of knowing good and evil and to know something in scripture the verb yadap meaning to know has to do with intimacy closeness it's used in relation to husbands and wives Adam knew his wife Eve you know, Adam came close to his wife Eve yeah Solomon asks for it, Eve tries to take it. But she, notice, she doesn't, Adam doesn't ask to know it. I don't want to know. Sorry, Solomon, thank you. You've got to fix it. When I make a mistake, don't just sit there thinking, he's made a mistake, he's going to mention this. Throw something or say something. Thank you very much, Mrs. Bennett. Solomon doesn't ask to know good and evil. I don't want to be acquainted with. I want to be able to discern so I can tell the difference and keep clear from the evil. Very significant moment. And drum roll, verse 10, it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. 
asked. And he said, well, because you've asked for that and you've not asked for long life or deliverance from your enemies or lots of money, I tell you, I'll give you lots of money anyway. Um, the purpose being to beautify the people of God so that um, all the nations might see the wealth and splendor that God has bequeathed on his people. And it's often made me think, actually, um, wouldn't it be wonderful if we had men of real integrity as our rulers? Um, I, I, I remember talking to Nicole about this, thinking, uh, it, it, I would love and be happy to pay for um, a beautiful parliament building for godly men and perhaps some godly women also to deliberate in and to rule us from thinking of Britain or you know, we want that in a sense insofar as what we were doing is showing our gratitude to God for the, the leaders that he'd given us and it's, it's tragic that, that you know, we, we sometimes feel this um, ambivalence don't we on the one hand scripture calls us to honour our civil leaders and we think what a high dignity they've been called to and yet sometimes they, they seem to fall some way short of what they're called to by the living God and, but Solomon is like a picture of the of this stage of the godly civil leader it ought to be easy to honour a man like this who wants above all else Lord please give me the wisdom that I need to govern this people and you find in coronation oaths of countries influenced by the scriptures and in um, presidential oaths of office in countries influenced by the scriptures you find remnants of if not this language these sentiments that people who rule a nation ought to seek wisdom above all else and Solomon's wisdom is shown um, in the very next little section uh, from verses 16 to 28 where he uh, is confronted with two ladies and one baby and they both claim the baby belongs to them and remember the uh, it's a really traumatic kind of episode but the wisdom of God is with Solomon so that he can administer justice and uh, I won't read the story uh, the narrative through in detail but it's very intriguing also I wonder if here we are supposed to see some of Solomon's self-control and self-awareness uh, not panicking uh, and also not dismissing this case as something that doesn't matter. You know? um, he has the, the presence of mind to uh, uh, understand what needs to be done and to do it uh, immediately. You remember what he says? He says, oh, well, uh, bring me a sword, we'll cut the child in two. And the, the child whose mother it is says, no, please don't do that. I'd rather not have the child than see it cut in half and so the Lord uh, Solomon says well that's the mum give, give the child to her so justice uh, wisdom self-awareness self-control um, end of chapter 4 verses 20 and 21 Judah and Israel which at this time were united the whole kingdom of Israel and Judah were as many as the sand by the sea where have you heard that before? Abraham. Yeah, promised Abraham from Genesis. This man is one through whom God's promises are being fulfilled. So another element of uh, the wisdom and therefore the maturity that Solomon embodies is that he brings to those for whom he's responsible the fulfillment of God's promises to them. So now think parents. Think of all that's Im implied by that. Um, God has promised to be God to you and to your children after you. 
And so what will wise parents do? Well, wise, wise and mature parents will find ways of living in, in such a way that through you, principally, your children come to experience the blessings that God has promised to his people. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt, which is to say, a lot. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Um, come to that tribute thing in a moment. Over the page, chapter 4, verse 29 to 34. A slightly different angle on Solomon's maturity as the, um, the greatest Adam so far, shall we say. I want to read this and um, make a comment or two about it. God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the East and all the wisdom of Egypt, which is a lot, right? because those nations had their share of wise men. He was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan the Ezraite. We were supposed to be impressed at this point, because you all know who Ethan the Ezraite was. Well, they would have done. Wiser than Heman, Kalkol, and Dada, the sons of Mahal, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations, and he spoke 3,000 proverbs, come to those in a minute, and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. Now, this is really intriguing, and I hadn't... I kind of knew in broad terms why this was significant for a long time, but it was only comparatively recently that it, that it struck me with fresh force. Broadly speaking, um, whenever you do anything in the world, you need to d- develop a vocabulary for describing it. Have you noticed that? Um, and this is how it occurred to me specifically. Um, uh, I was working with somebody on, this was a, about a year and a half ago, a couple of years ago, I was working with somebody on, a, on an IT project connected with an educational program. And they wanted to kind of set up some kind of online teaching system. And they were constructing kind of individual lectures and modules and courses and, and lots and lots of different elements to the teaching program. And, the, and the, the, the website had lots of different parts to it. And we realized we didn't have a well-defined vocabulary for talking about what it was we were talking about. And it was, we only needed about eight words. But we found ourselves just having to sit down and think, okay, now let's call this a module and let's call that a course. Okay, we agreed, because otherwise we're going to get tangled up. And that was a really simple project. Just think, now think about some of you guys, um, oh, all of you, anyone who's ever worked in a, a, a specialized professional field. Uh, you've got two pilots here, an economist, um, uh, someone who works in a bank, uh, several people who've worked in banks, um, uh, people who've worked in all kinds of different domains in building, and all the specialized vocabulary that you have which you take for granted, which I would be completely clueless about if I came and tried to do your job. I wouldn't, if you said, I mean, you could very quickly utter a sentence if I was sitting in the cockpit of your plane, and I wouldn't know what any of the words meant. And what the words do is they label deep understanding of that little bit of the world. 
it's not just about attaching labels to things. The, the labels, if you, if you have the capacity to attach a label to a thing in the world, what you've done is you've come to grips with it, you've understood it. And so I think about, um, I'll give you one illustration. I, I used to be a physicist, as you know, I worked in experimental physics, and so um, we would align the Fabry Perot interferometer with the back of the cantilever in the atomic force microscope. Yeah. Right? Every day? Every day. It took about six hours. And, and now, most of those words you've kind of heard before, some of them you haven't. But most of you don't know what any of them mean. And it's just, it's not, it's not particularly smart, it's just like what I happen to be know something about for three years, 25 years ago. And those words signify getting to grips with, as it happens, an extremely tiny part of the world, which isn't particularly relevant to many people. <laughs> now, what's Solomon doing here? Look at it. He spoke of trees. And we're like, oh yeah, that's a tree. No, he didn't do that. He, he spoke about them. From the cedar that's in Lebanon, which is this massive, great big thing, spectacular, 100 foot high, spreading branches, magnificent, lives for 100 and something years, to the hyssop that grows out of the walls, the one that's like, you know, like this. Yeah? And he spoke of them, which meant he came to grips with the world. In other words, this is a um, fairly ancient and a horticulturally oriented example of the specialization that almost all of you who are adults have developed in completely different fields and that those of you who are children will, Lord willing, develop in other ways. Whatever it is you do, whether it's raising your own children or working in a factory or teaching or whatever it is. This is a little glimpse of subdue the earth. Um, and all the specialized knowledge and understanding that comes with that. He's so good that people, you know, would come to the International Conference on Hyssops that Grow Out of Walls, hosted by Solomon in Jerusalem. It says so in verse 34. All the peoples of all nations used to come and hear the wisdom of Solomon. Because they're like, wow, we need somebody to explain to us how these parts work. And so that's what he did. Yeah, Fraser. So is this an echo of God brings all the animals to Adam to see what he right. named them? Exactly. Yeah. Giving names to things, just like Adam did in Genesis uh, 2, is exactly right. Yeah. It's a, it's a prominent echo of that. Well done. Okay, can you see there's a, there's a deep-seated conceptual link between giving names to things and understanding the world and therefore subduing the world? And we could get any, I, I, if we had more time, I'd get half a dozen guys up here, a couple of ladies, to talk about their specialties. We'd get Mrs. Um, uh, we'd get Mr. Brandt up to talk about airplanes, and we'd get um, uh, Mrs. Olsen up to talk about the medical things she does, and we'd get, um, you know, and, and they'd all talk a language that's completely foreign to us, which signifies mastery of that little corner of the creation. That's what we've got to do. Um, we should move more quickly. Uh, verses five, uh, chapters 5 to 9, he builds the temple, he builds his own house, and he reveals himself as not just a man of wisdom and a man of action, but a man of God. 
the Lord appears to him again in chapter 9. In chapter uh, uh, 8, you have his long prayer at the dedication of the temple, which is kind of like a model prayer that brings together not just his own faithfulness, but Israel's calling as a people to welcome all the nations. You know, whenever any foreigner who's not of your people comes near, then, uh, and he prays towards his house, please hear him. <laughs> and the Lord's like, yeah, well, of course I will. That's the whole point of the covenant with Abraham to hear the nations when they come towards the Lord in the house of God. And you get to chapter 10, and um, presumably she's recorded, the Queen of Sheba is recorded here because she was a particularly uh, eminent ruler. And um, she came to Jerusalem in verse 2, well, she came to test him with hard questions, you know, Nice try. Anyway, she came to Jerusalem with all these camels and spices and stones and gold. And, and she came to uh, Solomon. She told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions. Did you mind you anybody, by the way, um, who has, is surrounded by wise people and answers all their questions? Yeah? Yeah, no. We're talking about somebody from the Bible and Jesus. Yeah, in the temple. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Now, interestingly, he's asking them questions and, uh, but, uh, anyway. He's a kid at the time. He's a kid, yeah. Yeah, very good. Um, there's nothing, uh, hidden from the king that he couldn't explain to her. When the Queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, and, and now look, it wasn't just, like, he answered all her questions. The house that she that he built, the food on his table, the seating of his officials, the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings. She was totally blown away, as it says in Hebrew. Um, there was no more breath left in her. She was breathless. She saw his piety and the way he led the people in worship, sacrifices. She saw and heard his wisdom, but she also saw just the culture that he'd created, notably around the table, interestingly, isn't it? And presumably it's because that's the locus both of uh, governance, because it would have been eminent uh, leaders who would have been welcomed at the table, and also fellowship. So a man who rules, a man with warm relationships, a man who is wise, a man who is pious, a man who leads others, in worshipping the Lord. Wow, this guy's amazing. And then who does she say? You're just an amazing guy. No, verse 6, the report was true that I heard, but I didn't believe it, verse 7, until I saw it. Behold, not half was told me. You, it's even better. Um, verse 9, blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. So somehow these things are all done to the glory of God, and therefore she says, blessed be the Lord of God, not aren't you amazing King Solomon? I'm going home now. So, can you see that picture of mature, wise, godly humanness? Finally, just briefly, I'll say a word or two about the three great works of inspired literature that he produced. Proverbs, um, which is the path to wisdom. Uh, Ecclesiastes, uh, understanding the chaos and uncertainty and when things don't work out as they should of the world. And interestingly, the Song of Solomon, because um, as we'll see in a few minutes, um, 
faithfulness in marriage turns out to be even more significant than it obviously already is given the command to fill and subdue the earth. Um, faithfulness in marriage is a big deal. Really big deal. Anyway, so that's, that's Solomon. Now, um, much of that may have been familiar to you in one form or another. I hope it's kind of encouraging and sort of inspiring a little bit. I find it like if you abstract just that half step away from our own situation and see a man in a different culture and see how he honored God, and you could, it's kind of quite exciting, you know? And all the things that we do are in some way related to that. He's not a man who is anxious. He's not a man um, who fails to take every opportunity for joyful, enthusiastic, sacrificial service. You know, he, he handles the demands and complexities of life. Um, we've not yet seen much in the way of sins we're about to, sadly. But Can you see how in different ways Solomon's life draws together those threads from that summary paragraph? Let me pause, see if you have any questions before we move on, because I want to pick up one very important thread from this, and then we'll expand it more. Any other comments, questions? All right. So, one of my favorite books from the last couple of years, I, I warned you of it, threatened you with it last week. Uh, I want to talk about um, one of its most significant insights this week. This is... Solomon Says by Mark Horn. Never met Mark, been in touch with him online a number of times over well over a decade. This book, um, if you read one Christian book this year, let it be this one. Um, and I want to show you why. Um, what Mark highlights is something we so often miss when we think about God's command to Adam in Genesis 1. The command to rule the world entails a command to rule that particular part of the world which is made up of you. Self-rule is not just part of the mandate that God gave Adam. It is the thing that you have to do in order to do any of the rest of it. You have to be in command of yourself, to rule yourself. And in particular, to control your desires. Now, I've quoted a few bits of this before, um, uh, particularly at the Men's Discipleship Breakfast a couple of weeks ago, but I want to read a few more sections, um, which I've noted here. And then I will go over the page, and I want to expand, or I want to show you how Scripture develops this idea of self-rule. But first, just under the heading, Understanding Self-Rule, here are a few quotes from Mark's book. If you don't govern yourself, you'll be governed by others, and your own impulses will be the reins they use to lead you. Particularly written now to young men, but equally applicable to uh, women in different ways and all of us in other ways. When you leave your parents behind, you must learn to parent yourself. Nobody going to tell you to tidy your bedroom. Nobody going to cook for you. Nobody going to get you up in the morning to do it yourself. If you don't become your own effective parent, Solomon warns, you'll end up being ruled by other parents who probably don't care about your best interests. I remarked um, to the guys that in the founding documents, or sorry, among the founding fathers of this country, um, uh, was a concern for limited government. 
that is to say, limited uh, external government, limited federal government. And there were debates over whether it should be what kind of federal it should be, obviously. But um, there was also a deep-seated recognition that you couldn't have limited external government unless you had self-government. If you don't have men and women who will control their own lives, you have to have laws to control them. Otherwise, people do all kinds of stupid things all the time. So, I mean, let's just take a really trivial example. Um, you, suppose you just say, well, we want to give everybody the right to bear arms. But nobody controls their anger. Well, pretty soon you're going to run into all kinds of trouble. And you see, actually, the fruit of that. And so some in, the modern, uh, in modern America want to repeal the right to bear arms because, they say, people can't control their anger. Now, for myself, it's not obvious that that's the right thing to do. I don't know whether you think it's a good idea to repeal um, sec Second Amendment. Second Amendment. Yes. Um, uh, I don't think it. I don't think that's the solution. But it's really interesting, isn't it? That when you give, or rather, when you recognise people's God-given freedoms, what you're doing is calling upon them to restrain their own actions. And to the extent they don't do that, you start to need other laws and people start to demand other government because people can't govern themselves. Horn continues, page 7. Every descendant of Adam and Eve is called to rule over a portion of creation, including himself, perhaps even especially himself. The call to Adam and Eve is a call to all of us to be kings and queens, subduing an appropriate territory to God's glory. This territory may not be much, but God's promise is that if we are faithful in small things, we will be given responsibility over great things. Now, this image of kings and queens is really fascinating. We think of kings and queens as people who rule over a territory, which of course they do. And some of them have done it terribly. Terribly. Because they have not ruled well over their own desires. And if you think, if you think of a bunch of um, evil rulers from history, the caricatured ones, Mao and Pol Pot and Hitler, and then the lesser known um, no-good rulers, really, you find a, a list of people who couldn't control their own urges, their own desires. The mission given to humanity to transform the world is also a mandate for humans themselves to be transformed into more of God's likeness, which is relevant because um, not only is God in complete control of all that he does, he controls himself purely and perfectly. So he's not um, the cold-blooded tyrant. He's the, the loving, wise, gracious, and absolutely in control of himself, living God. Now, that theme of self-rule um, can helpfully be explored in relation to a number of different themes. And I want to highlight just one, which Mark has mentioned. Then we'll pause after this and see if you've got any questions so far. And then I want to go to some um, just other particular examples in the rest of the time we've got. Um, just look with me at Luke chapter 19. And this puzzling parable... Uh, Luke 19, well, begin at verse 11. Um, I'll read it, and then um, 
make a couple of comments on it. Um, as they heard these things, Jesus proceeded to tell them a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. He said, A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then returned. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten miners and said to them, Engage in business until I come. Jesus, in this parable, obviously speaking of um, himself or of the Lord as this nobleman, tells his disciples to do business, do stuff, be useful. And this starts the trouble that people have interpreting this because people sometimes feel that, oh, it's somewhat kind of impious to go and engage in business. Well, Jesus thinks it's a good thing to do. Go and do things. Make money, for goodness sake. Do something. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, saying, we don't want this man to rule over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered his servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came to him saying, Lord, your miner has made ten miners more. And he said to him, well done, good and good servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, you shall be given authority over ten cities. Now just look at that. First, notice Jesus in this parable is creating a picture within which he causes people to be fruitful in doing their business and when somebody is they receive greater responsibility you've you've gone from one to ten so you get ten cities now children it's really really important for you to understand this and parents actually it's important to understand this too Um, the task of growing up is the task of being faithful with little and then a little bit more and then a little bit more and then maybe a little bit more and don't be surprised if at that point if you're unfaithful at that point your parents say well okay maybe we need to to pull this back a little bit don't be surprised if privileges that you've been granted are rescinded or taken away from you if you prove unfaithful with them because your parents will just conclude well you're not really obviously mature enough to do this clearly we you know clearly we're going to have to do this for you which is a bit disappointing because you're 14 now you know you should be able to take responsibility in this area what parents love is when they give their children responsibility and their children say yes ma'am i'll do that and then they go and do it are you going to weed the garden? Yep, I'll do it. And they go, weed the garden, and it's done. And then dad goes out, and it's like, right, this is really good. There are no weeds anywhere. And then when son says, hey, can I borrow the car to go and see my friends? I say, well, yes, because you've got into the habit of doing what you said you were going to do. But if you don't do what you said you're going to do with something that I can see, how do I know that you're going to do what you said you were going to do with something I can't see? And the bigger the responsibility, the greater the danger of it all going terribly wrong. So because your parents love you so much, they don't want to expose you to huge hazards. And so if, you, if you're unfaithful with little things, you put them in a terrible position because they desperately want to give you freedom and responsibility. And yet they feel like, oh, if I do that, something terrible might happen because every time, I ask, every time he says that he'll do the washing up before he goes to bed, he doesn't do it. They want to give you freedom. They don't want you in the house still when you're 50 years old. You know, get out. They want you out in the world. And so please, please take this precious one minor. It's like one little coin. Take that precious opportunity. When mum says, um, hey, um, uh, there's a few extra things need to be done in the backyard this morning on Saturday. Could you do 
dub, 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 rake the leaves up, cut the loose branches off that tree, put them all in the fire and burn them, then sweep up the ash and make sure it's all tidy. It's like, that's your chance to show that in three years' time you can borrow Dad's car and drive to Dallas to see your friends. Don't blame him if he won't let you do that because you didn't sweep the leaves up when you said you were going to. Yeah? And Jesus here has this whole parable. I won't keep reading it because it will take all evening. But you see the point. Um, now, um, self-rule is critical for this because the master has gone away. Mum's not looking. Dad's not looking. Who has got to motivate you to do this? It's got to be you. Self rule leads to greater responsibility. Ten cities. And it's interesting, you, you, you think that's like that's quite an extravagant increase increase from one coin to ten coins to ten cities. Let me tell you, adult life is a a spectacularly wonderful set of opportunities. There's, I mean, it's not limitless, but there are so many different things that you could do as an adult. And you guys who are adults, especially younger adults, are discovering this. And the, 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 the analogy of going from ten coins to ten cities is actually not too far removed from the step from saying please do the washing up and rake the leaves to you go get married and you buy your own house and you have your own job and you have your own car and you have your own life and you have your own family and you have your own children that that step from 10 coins to 10 cities is about the same order as rake the leaves to be married and be the head of your own household. And what are you, 15 now? And that you're 14? 12? Okay, 12. You know, so 10 years, 10, 12 years, you know, you, could, you guys could be married with, married, married with like two children. Does that scare you? Yeah, so, yeah, anyway, get started, right. I mean, let me just pause there. So, um, can you see what we've, we've covered so far? We've thought about this Solomonic picture of Adamic maturity. Uh, then we've thought about the underlying theme of controlling your own desires. We're going to come to that in a second again. And then we've talked about how the process of growing into that is a process of dramatic increases in responsibility. And you show your capacity in small things, and then the way things ought to be is that your responsibilities increase over time. Yeah, Samuel. Uh, all this that's um, mentioned in Scripture and by Mark Horn, it all goes to show why you look at practically almost every revolution that has occurred throughout history, and you notice the pattern of failure, the roots of the pattern of failure, is the lack of self-rulership. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Because all they're doing... Yes. You know, they're led on by false promises like everyone is born free or from each according to his abilities to each according to his needs. But they are not encouraged to rule themselves, which mm-hmm. is why when the revolution is done, things end up getting worse. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, okay. Uh, let, let's carry on because there'll be more. Um, 
Oh yeah, sorry, Leah. Yeah, thank you. I might be missing a little bit, but I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about something called self-rule instead of just the beam and the dog. It seems to me that you could be completely self-discipline for lens and then not Yes, yes. You could. Um, so, so why why um, use the label self-rule, which is not a biblical term, um, when we could talk about obedience, or obedience to God, which are, they are biblical terms. Uh, and actually, self-rule could be used, a tyrant could be completely in control of his emotions. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, uh, I think I would say, firstly, that obedience is obviously a, a biblical term. And uh, what we're wanting to do here is to focus on one particular aspect of it. And to rule, is clearly a biblical notion. Um, and we ourselves are part of the created order. In fact, we're that part of the created order over which we have the most immediate, proximate capacity to exercise rule. So if I talk about self-rule, really what I'm... It, though the phrase doesn't appear in the Bible, the notion certainly does, because if you think you've got to fill and subdue the world, you, philosophically speaking, so to speak, you've got to go, go from here, where I am, outwards. And I, or me, is, I am, the the tool, so to speak, that in and through which I do all of this other ruling. And so just as a, a blacksmith has to be in control of the hammer if he's not to hit himself in the head or on the hand or hit the dog, you know, he's got to hit the, the, the sword in the right place or the, the, the um, horseshoe. So also we have to be able to control or rule ourselves. Now, uh, anything can be perverted and twisted, yes. Um, you could, just like rule can be, um, the command to rule the world. Well, Jesus had some pretty choice words for people who exercised rule in a domineering fashion. Um, but, yeah, I think that's, that's the reason for using that vocabulary. And I find it quite illuminating, in a sense, because it focuses on something which is often neglected, but is really important. So, yeah, thank you. Yeah, Kaby. Didn't you say that it actually is in the Bible? Because isn't it basically the same thing as self-control? Yeah, you could say. Fruit of spirit, the yeah. whole... I mean, couldn't you say just another way of saying that? Yeah. Is it another way of saying self-control? In, in one sense, yes, it is. And I think um, the reason to, to prefer... The, the reason not to use the word self-control is because normally we talk about self-control in the sense of restraining negative things. Does that make sense? Whereas self-rule, we want to say, is the path to doing positive things. But you're absolutely right. Self-control um, is an aspect of that. Um, so, so let's imagine back to our you know young man who's gonna he's been asked to sweep the, to rake the leaves up. Well, there's a kitchen full of food in the cupboards and a freezer full of ice cream and he could easily just sort of pile into that and he's going to have to exercise self-control in relation to his hunger and get the job done and then eat something sensible rather than just troughing a quart of ice cream you know so self-control absolutely yeah um let me suggest we, we keep going through because i want to keep um 
uh, try and finish this handout if we can. I think we might be able to. Um, we've, we've seen already a couple of different things. First, we've seen the place of, of marriage in the fill and subdue command. Fill obviously implies child raising and actually subdue does because there's no way Adam's doing that on his own or even just Adam and Eve on their own um, and uh, among Solomon's accomplishments were the, uh, was the inspired authorship of a love song um, the song of songs which is Solomon's let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth song of Solomon 1, 1 and 2 so it's somewhat regrettable um, that in 1 Kings 11 you discover how badly Solomon did uh, that task about which he wrote so eloquently. So he wrote a song in which he placed in a woman the words, let him kiss me, that is to say, and nobody else. <laughs> and it's a song about the, the longing for... Uh, uh, devotion, single-minded, single-hearted, uh, exclusive, that's what I'm looking for, <laughs> I'm looking for the word. exclusive devotion between a man and a woman as they contemplate coming together in marriage. In 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 1, um, you know this pretty well, it's right at the, after the climax of Solomon's reign in 1 Kings 10. Now, King Solomon, verse 1, loved many foreign women uh, along with the daughter of Pharaoh for whom he's already built a house there are seeds of his downfall actually in the preceding chapters a bunch of people from other nations and the problem is not that they're foreign at all that's not a problem, the problem is that they worshipped other gods and brought their gods with them the problem is that they're idolatrous marriages and polygamous marriages, and some of them weren't even marriages. 700 wives, princesses, a hint that the motives were not even, they were mostly political. I mean, 700 people, you probably can't even know all their names, for goodness sake. It's just ludicrous. Um, these are political alliances forged through marriage rather than even proper marriages. And then 300 concubines. So a concubine is somebody to whom you don't even give the legal privileges associated with being a wife. And end of verse 3, his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. And it is absolutely terrifying. It ought to be terrifying to all of us. It actually ought especially to be terrifying to anybody who's ever given instruction in wisdom and sexual fidelity, like all pastors have tried to do, and all fathers ought to have tried to do, it ought to be terrifying to us that at the end of his life, he who gave some of the greatest instruction, apart from Jesus, anywhere in the scripture and anywhere in the history of humanity about wisdom and sexual fidelity and sexual self-control, had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And this raises a question, which is, um, is this just like, this was Solomon's problem? Like, cause some, some, some guys like video games, some guys like money, some guys are promiscuous, you know. 
and everyone's got their own kind of sins they need to deal with. And that's how I've often read it, and I'm now convinced that's wrong. And the reason is because it seems to be the case that um, sexual unfaithfulness in marriage and sexual misbehavior more generally is portrayed in Scripture as like the... Not quite the the um, the greatest sin. That's a mistake to describe it like that. Although Joseph does call it the great sin, or no, rather the great evil, he calls it um, this great evil. Um, but it's it's portrayed as constitutive of the path to unfaithfulness and ruin in everywhere, everything else. And one of the ways you see this is in Genesis. Um, and I've mentioned this before, I think twice over the last couple of years, to the, to the men mainly. Maybe I've mentioned it in a podcast as well. If you read the story of Genesis, you could read the story of Genesis as a, an extended narrative of every different kind of sexual perversion being committed by Adam and his offspring. Not just sexual perversions, failures of marriage more generally. And just consider, I've listed them here. Chapter 3, Adam abandoning his wife and refusing to protect her from the serpent's temptation. Chapter 4, Lamech uh, with his polygamy and his boastful posturing to his wives. The sons of God and the daughters of men, whatever was going on there, please don't ask. I, don't, I know what most of the options are, and I think I know what I think, but at, at any rate, it's clearly some kind of forbidden sexual union. Uh, Canaan and his father Noah, apparently Canaan was somewhat prurient, gazing on his father's nakedness. Abraham and Pharaoh, I think here you've got uh, a case of abandoning your wife, saying um, uh, she's my sister. I know some people read that differently, but I'm, I've read it... it I know what most of the options are. I think this is a, an example of Abraham doing what he shouldn't have done, abandoning his wife. Sarah and Hagar, well, that was a bad idea, Sarah. Okay, <laughs> that was a really bad idea. The men of Sodom, say no more. Lot and his daughters, incest. Abraham and Abimelech, replay of chapter 12. Isaac and Abimelech, <laughs> replay of chapter 26. Esau and Mahalath, um, he's also a, a polygamist, multiple wives. Well, the whole chaos with Isaac and Laban, and the deception involved, and then the polygamy, Rachel and Leah, and Bilhah and Zilpah, the maidservants. Shechem and Dinah, the rape of Dinah, most grotesque incident. Uh, Reuben and Bilhah, Bilhah was his father's concubine, and you might remember Reuben um, slept with her. Esau, again, polygamist, this time specifically with Canaanite women. Then Judah, Judah and Onan and Tamar, um, the sin of Onan not fulfilling his obligation under what later came to be known as the Leverite marriage law to provide children for um, his brother's wife. And then Judah uh, committing incest with a woman who he thought was a prostitute but was actually his daughter-in-law. Like you get, Genesis is just some... I mean, like, there, there are other sexual perversions, but there aren't many more than are already listed up to chapter 38. And then what do you find in chapter 39? The remarkable account of Joseph, the first man in the Bible to be specifically noted for his sexual self-control. Now look with me. I'm going to go over time today, so I apologize. It's going to be about three or four minutes over. Apologies to the Zoomers. Please leave with my blessing if you need to do so. But we'll get to the end of this, um, Lord willing. 
Genesis 39.6, Joseph has already been put in charge of all of Potiphar's household. Potiphar is, an, is a uh, senior Egyptian uh, uh, officer. He's handsome in form and appearance. Apparently a younger man than Potiphar probably would have been, had to be younger because Potiphar's quite senior. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything. He's put me in charge of everything. He's, he's not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself because you are his wife. And this is really interesting what he says next. How then could I do this great evil? Literally. The great evil and sin against God. A friend of mine, Matt Fuller, he did a study of this, and I forget what he he discovered. Um, But there aren't many things in the Bible that are called this great evil. Um, I, I haven't had time to look up his work on it. And then verse 10 is really interesting. He spoke, she spoke to Joseph day after day. Like day after day after day, you're being presented with the same temptation. And day after day after day. Isn't, isn't, he didn't just sort of defeat it once and then, phew, thank goodness for that, temptation's over. He kept coming back and he kept resisting. And so up to chapter 39, what you now know is when it comes to sexual self-restraint, there's one faithful man in the universe that we know about. His name is Joseph. So who is God going to use to keep the people of God alive? Joseph, Joseph obviously. So what do you need to do if you want to save the world? You're like, in fact, if this is all you've got, this is all of history that we have inspired narration of by the Spirit. We have 39 chapters. So far, what we know is if you want to save... Well, by the time we, get, we know what Joseph did, by the beginning of um, uh, Exodus, we've got 51 chapters, okay? 50 in Genesis, one chapter in Exodus. The man who saves the world is the man who can control himself. And it's just fascinating to me that um, it's not like there's lots and lots of different sins and lots of different ways in which things could go wrong. Although there are, obviously, there are different ways. But this sin seems to be the one which, if resisted consistently, verse 10, day after day, is the path to the fulfillment of the mandate that God gave Adam. Joseph is the great faithful hero of the book of Genesis. By the time you get to the end, like a third of the book is about him. Not quite a third, almost a third, over a quarter. And so this has implications for what we may expect of our own fruitfulness in the world. Um, Mark Horn calls attention to its significance for marriage um, here's a quote from the marriage service. With my body, I honor you. This is, these are the promises that the bride and groom make, and some of you know this. With my body, I honor you. All that I am, I give to you. And all that I have, I share with you within the love of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Mark comments, when a man and woman get married, they promise themselves to each other. The bridegroom offers his self to the bride and vice versa. The assumption is that they are each in a position to actually give what they promise. But how often is that completely true? You can't give what you don't own. You can't give what you don't possess. 
Are you in complete possession of yourself? Or have you allowed yourself to be taken by somebody else? your desires to be taken so that you can't give all that you are because you don't own it. While the average bride and groom are in in a wedding are legally free to the other, how much freedom do they possess to truly offer and give themselves to the other? Another quotation. If you can't master yourself, you have no capacity to offer yourself to another in any significant way. Sometimes two people take vows to each other who have invisible spouses already chained to their hands, feet, eyes, and mouths. They're slaves to ambition, greed, vices, assorted addictions, and fears, and of course they may be enslaved to specifically sexual temptation as well. A married person, therefore, final quote, has to realize that the vow to belong to another entails a vow to capture and dominate one's self so that one has a person to offer the other. So you young people, one day, Pastor Neil and I pray that we may have the privilege of either being in the congregation at, or maybe, maybe even presiding at your wedding if you should choose to ask one of us to do it. What an honor that would be. And we will have to ask you in the preparation for it, in one way or another, do you actually have possession of yourself? Or have you given yourself away to all of these vices so that you're not really in control of your life? You can't promise that you're going to give yourself to this woman because you're just dragged every which way by everything else. And you've given yourself away to lusts and to pornography and to fornication and every other vice. And it's... it's It brings unimaginable pain, sometimes before a wedding, to have to work through the consequences of that. And it doesn't make the marriage itself any easier. So guys... Uh, we conclude just by speaking to you young folks um, that you, are, you will never have a better day than today to begin to get control of those desires particularly and of course um, where we're going in the big picture of this series is to say that all of us are to a certain extent children I meant this is the, the big picture that I shared with the gentleman two or three weeks ago all of us actually are there are aspects of our lives where we're still immature we still need to grow up and maybe for some of us older men you know, where there's, okay, there's something I need to get control of. Well, there'll never be a better day than today. And for those of you who are married or who hope to be, um, well, get yourself in a position where you can give yourself to your wife, ladies, to your husband. All right. Thank you for your forbearance. Zoomers, thank you. Um, we are four minutes over time. But I was three minutes early last week, right? So that's... That's within tolerance. Um, we'll continue next time. Uh, there are a few things here, but we will roll them into what we look at going forward. You can look those up if you like. And if you do, then you might like to ask yourself um, what the sinner is ensnared by in each of those uh, texts. Anyway, and there's a little reference at the bottom. But apologies for that last reference. That was supposed to be just a little footnote. Somehow it turned into a heading. It's a, it's a book that I was going to make some comments on, but I won't now. I'll talk about it another time. So let's break, and then um, we can go.
Merciful Father, we're grateful to you for um, this warning and this glorious biblical picture of mature manhood, mature Christ-like Solomonic wisdom. And we ask that you'd teach us to aspire to it and to uh, move increasingly towards it. Help us, we pray, to uh, grow in faithfulness and to be in a position to give ourselves to each other particularly those of us who are married or who will be to our wives and husbands but all of us to one another to be uh, ruling our desires in a Christ-like fashion so that we can make decisions which will conduce to one another's flourishing and growth uh, and Christ-likeness and we pray in Jesus name Amen